The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. We've had an amazing quarter millennium of progress. But yet, people think that they're always living in the end of days, that this is it. We can't keep doing it because it's unpredictable. What I want to do is give us the resources to not predict the future, but sort of invent the future. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I'm joined, as always, by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And What Could Go Right is our weekly podcast where we talk to people who are animated by a spirit that the future can be better and that there are many people who are working assiduously and passionately and daily to make the world a place of our dreams because they recognize all the things that remain to be done in order to make it so. We're recording this in a moment of, I suppose, modestly good political and economic news in the United States in that it would appear that the worst fears of our political process in the U.S. leading to a massive economic miscalculation and default on the U.S. sovereign debt is not going to happen. I suppose the world could fall apart between what I just said and when you're listening to this. And if so, oh well. But for the moment, that doesn't seem likely. And I think it's another indication that we spend an awful lot of time gaming out and assuming the likelihood of the worst coming to pass and much less so assuming that it won't. And maybe that's a pathology of modern news. Maybe it's just a problem of we like drama and saying that, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine, isn't very dramatic and isn't very interesting. But in many cases, it's absolutely true. And this past week was one more example of it. And we're going to talk to someone today who's been writing a lot about the government and economic policy, but also just about what's going on in the world of technology and economics and growth and what the present, past and future are, have been and will be. So who are we going to talk to today, Emma? Right. So today we're going to talk to James Pethokoukas. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he analyzes U.S. economic policy he writes and edits the AEI Ideas blog and their podcast, which is the political comedy podcast. And he is the writer of a Substack called Faster Please, which talks about all the things that Zachary just mentioned, tech, innovation, economics, and just generally how we can create what he calls a wealthier, healthier, more cool America. All right, let's talk to Mr. Pethokoukas. All right. James Pethokoukas, a.k.a. Jim. Thank you for joining us today on What Could Go Right. We are recording this just after the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill authorizing a raising of the U.S. debt ceiling limit. Yeah, after weeks of public negotiations with folks from the White House heading over to Capitol Hill and folks from Capitol Hill coming here to the White House, that was it. It was an email. It was a press release saying that the bill had been signed. He, in the email, he thanked Speaker McCarthy, Leader Jeffries, Leader Schumer, and Leader McConnell for their partnership. Washington loves to work under pressure here, right? This happened 48 hours before that X date that Treasury Secretary Jenny Yellen put into place saying the government would run out of money and be unable to pay their bills. And while this is in many ways a weird, arcane, somewhat wonky thing, it has legitimately captured a lot of attention over the past couple of months. So as much as this was a symbol of dysfunction, I wonder if 
from your lights. This was also ultimately a very bizarre, somewhat unexpected, and what will remain unheralded example of people in government kind of came together, did what was right, political inclinations notwithstanding. I think reaching a, reaching an agreement, even though it's way closer than what it should have been, I think reaching that agreement suggests there is less crazy in Washington than we might have feared. It was certainly my impression that mo- that certainly I think most Democrats and most Republicans realized defaulting on the debt would be a bad thing. That even though there were these theories that Oh, Wall Street really wouldn't mind because it would show we're serious about cutting long-term debt and all that. So if that was the price we had to pay, so be it. I mean, that was exactly a theory that we heard a decade ago. I think that theory, which I think is kind of ridiculous, didn't really have much traction in the end. And And finally, the government came together and did what it was supposed to do. Again, much closer to what it should have been. I think that's a good sign. I think whatever politicians don't make things noticeably worse. I think that's that's a really good thing. It would really be great if we didn't have to go through this every few years. And it would be even greater if, you know, those politicians who said they're very concerned about our long-term debt would take actions, fundamental, substantive actions to deal with long-term debt rather than these sort of tactical moves. But the fact they got this close to the sign of dysfunction, but I'm going to, I'll take the, I'll take the win. I have a perhaps naive follow-up question to that, which is, I feel like we, as you said, we go through this every few years, meaning like there's always this like, we're teetering on the edge of default and like there's lots of like really intense rhetoric and then it always does get resolved. And it seems to me just to be a matter of like the minority party getting in the things that they haven't been able to get in legislatively, right? Is that fair? Because I, as a lay person, I've kind of been like, every time this stuff comes around, I'm like, eh, I'll figure it out. Like, never seen it happen before. Is that fair? You sound like many Europeans who the editorial board of the Financial Times, perhaps, who, when they look at this, they figure, well, that in the end, America will do the right thing. After it's tried everything else, it'll do the right thing, that old saying. But I think, listen, I think this was pretty close. And there were certainly Republicans who were who were saying that, gee, if, if all this spending caused the inflation, which it, you know played some role, then. Maybe one way of getting rid of inflation is reducing the debt. So they had sort of a, a theory of the case that they thought was, you know, had, had made, made some sense. But, you know, it, it was pretty close. It was as close as it's ever been. And the, I mean, what is the incentive structure? The incentive structure now is that if you push the other party hard, the one that's supposedly in control, the other party had the Democrats at the White House. That, that's, that's pretty important that if you push them hard, you can get something out of it. You may not get everything, but you can get something out of it. And I, so I think Republicans feared we, we won. President Biden said no strings attached. In the end, there were strings attached. So they can go, even though they didn't get what the House Republicans originally wanted, they can say we got something. So what's the incentive for next time? Well, pushing it really hard and, and getting something. So what do you think people got? I mean, was there an affirmative other than the Republicans got two years extra of work work provisions for people aged 52, 53. The Democrats got to save more IRS funding because of just lovely Washington bookkeeping. You know, the budget was then cut, but then it won't be cut because then the money that was cut from somewhere else will be reallocated to it. So it's cut, but it's not cut. I don't know. I mean, it. it a bit less spending, right? There'll be a bit less spending. So this is, I mean, it's real. It's really, given the potential downside, what was eventually achieved was pretty minimal. So you have, so one, you have to think, you know, was it, you know, was it fundamentally worth it? Well, well, no, I, I, I don't think it was fundamentally worth it. You know, not much was not much will be really changed. But again, if you're in political and, you know, I hate approaching it from this angle, but if your incentive is that is just to beat the other side to some degree, then that then then that's what Republicans did because they they were able to get something. And the most important thing they got is that President Biden had to give up on his no strings attached thing. So they say we moved the president. We forced him to do. Now, again, I find that all very boring. 
I find those kinds of incentives and those kinds of games extremely boring. They make for a lot of like axios and political stories. But I have, I fundamentally have zero interest in those kinds of, those kinds of debates and figuring out the winners, the political winners and losers that just, just really not interested in that. Now, if this debate had been two sides, both putting forward their Medicare and social security reform plans and being discussed in the media, that would be great. That would have been very, a very interesting debate, but neither side had any interest in really doing that. So this debate is a debate about tactics and political winners and losers. Which again, I think I think misses misses a lot and fundamentally doesn't change anything. I think there might not have been a whole lot of interest in journalists in covering it that way either, right? Like there's a there's a big tendency towards horse race journalism, less of a tendency towards like let's actually try to assess whoever's ideas or whoever's policies are going to make more more sense here. I I don't see that a lot personally. It's like you know again, it's just like a political race. I mean, so much I mean horse race coverage versus the substantive policy debate. Though of course. More and more, we see, I think, even in presidential races, you see politicians putting up sort of ridiculous plans as sort of admission tickets into their political races. I remember President Trump's 2016 tax plan, which I think was a $13 trillion tax cut. What he eventually passed was a $1.5 trillion tax cut. So that first plan, which plenty of journalists, you know, covered like this is his real plan and we need the what would be. I mean, that, you know, it was a silly plan, but yet you sort of have to cover it. But that wasn't like a real plan. So it also be great. Our politicians would give like somewhat, you know, real comprehensive plans that would make some sort of sense that could actually get passed. And then we could debate those. So it's a certain lack of seriousness. So I wonder, is there another lack of seriousness in the way in which sort of we politically understand and then also the way we economically understand deficits? So. There seem to be two extremes here. One is deficits don't matter, and there was a, there is a strain of what's called modern monetary theory that essentially sovereign governments can endlessly, because they're issuing debt in their own sovereign currency, you can't ever really go bankrupt, so you can basically just continue to issue money. That's a an overly simplistic way of talking about that theory, but it's essentially a theory of deficits, at least within the realm of what they exist in, don't matter. I'm sure. Nobody would argue that a deficit of, I don't know, a quintillion dollars wouldn't matter. I mean, there's, there's a number out there where no one would argue that it matters. And then the other one of like, the American government should be like, you know, the average person who balances their checkbook and spends within their means, right? And those are kind of the, the two poles. But it seems like we've had people since the 90s warning in a, again, very bipartisan way, Larry Summers, who has been in democratic administrations was his own version of a deficit hawk but it doesn't actually seem to have mattered yet right i mean does it matter will it matter should it matter well i i think it, i think we don't I mean i mean this is a this is a question i you know i i've discussed and i've asked people you know about you know what's the magic number what's the magic you know share of gdp where we go go over the edge and markets freak out i mean i don't know exactly what that is certainly as a share of gdp the debt has gone up a lot since the early 2000s. It's got it's uh, share GDP. I think it's you know like tripled. And up until fairly recently, we had very low interest rates. Maybe they were artificially low. So, in the end, markets you know will let us know. Borrowing costs go up, and I don't think there's an an infinite runway. But you know there is some runway, and I would be I would feel a lot better that if we had fiscally solvent programs that didn't assume debt never mattered. But we also have the advantage of one, you know, obviously, you know, the dollar is the world's currency. We're not a heavily taxed nation. So if we had to, and we're going to have to, we can, we can raise taxes. And we're a nation that is very productive, but could be way more productive. If you are a more productive country and you can grow more, uh, it's easier to deal with these debt problems. You can't necessarily grow your way out of a debt problem, but if you were a growthier country, and a lot of my work is about that very issue, making us growthier. Then you have more runway to deal with, deal with debt or spend money on a lot of things. But you know whether it's spending money on, you, know, you pick you pick your program. It's better to have greater resources than less. So the U.S. is in a bit of a unique you know position. But I wouldn't just assume that position can withstand all these other pressures and a potential financial market reaction at some point. I'd rather you know not see that day. I, I do not believe we have optimal. I mean, one 
one, does policy matter? I think it does matter. If it, if I did not think it did, I would, I would have, you know, I would have been an attorney, something like that. Policy matters. Obviously, you know, I work at a think tank and I think better policy would help encourage a more, you know, to use the administration's phrase, greater productive capacity by the United States. I love it. I love when politicians use that word, productivity, productive capacity. Yeah, I think absolutely we could. This is not the best of all possible worlds. And I don't think we should accept that this is just kind of how it is and how we're going to grow, how we're going to grow. And therefore, we need to just purely focus on redistributing the benefits of that growth. I think we can grow faster. I think we can grow substantially faster. And I would like to see what the world would look like had we been growing substantially faster for the past half century. If sort of those growthy dreams of the 1960s or even the 1990s had actually panned out, you know, what the world would look like. I, I, I think it would be I think it would be a better America. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the basic history here being that we were super productive right up until the 70s. The 70s saw like, the quote-unquote great stagnation, and we're not nearly as, as growth-oriented as we once were. And I know there are several theories about why this happened. What is yours? A compilation of them, or do you have a different one? Right. There are a lot of theories, and I sort of break them down into maybe things we could control and things we couldn't control. I mean, there's the theory that it just became a lot harder to like get big ideas. That if there's like a tree of ideas, the tree, the, all the big ideas on the low hanging branches we got. So then we had a, so now we have to climb up higher on the tree. You know, when we do research, it requires a greater expenditure of resources. We need more researchers. Researchers have to, you know, learn more. So they have to, they have to go to school longer. The whole process is a lot slower. So that's the low hanging fruit theory. Do I think that, and I think there's some validity to that. There's the, all we, that we had all these great inventions back in the late 18th century, right? Rather the late 19th century, early 20th century, we sort of extracted all the productivity gains from electrification and the internal combustion engine. The new inventions just haven't been as good. They, they, not that they're unimportant, unimportant, but like the computer and the internet gave us a bit of a productivity boost. They just were not fundamentally as sweepingly important as public sanitation making us healthier or again, the, you know, the combustion engine or electrifying factories. Uh, so that, you know, that's a theory and, and there are others. So that's kind of like the macro theory. I mean, there's not much we could have done necessarily about those situations, but then what, what did we do? Did we, did we make mistakes? Was it helpful that we began spending a lot less as a share of our economy on R&D, on basic research after the space race? Probably not helpful. Uh, do we decide to create a regulatory re uh, regime that made it a lot harder to build things in the physical world? And we didn't really focus that much on the downside. 
probably not helpful. So I think there are things we could have done differently to sort of offset those headwinds. And we did. My ideal world, not to go on, is that every pol- ev- that every change to the tax code, every spending program should be looked at through a innovation lens. Does it make it easier to innovate in this country? Does it does it is it does it help growth? Does it help technological progress? That that shouldn't be the only factor, but that's something we should care about. So I mean that, that that's sort of my short answer is I think it's a multi a multi-causal, multi-faceted problem. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, we could have, you know, we could be richer. We could be healthier. The world could be cooler. And that's the kind of world I like to build. And I like the double entendre of the world could be cooler because it could it could be less climate change temperature rising, but it could also just be way cooler. I've been watching a lot of a lot of like TV shows and movies lately about about scary movies about climate change, which I think do a, a great disservice. So that's on my mind. What about the, and this is, you know, kind of wonk alert, wonk alert, but the question of we are maybe more productive than we think because productivity is a statistic whose measurements in a technology-fueled world uh, have been notoriously complicated. Uh, You know, it was a 20th century statistic based largely on measurable output per Wheat and steel. Right. Wheat and, steel, we made. wheat and steel economy. We don't have a wheat and steel economy anymore. So we don't quite know how to do a bits and bytes productivity economy. People, you know, we're, there's a lot of very interesting work. One of the members of the Progress Network, Eric Brin Jolson's done a lot of interesting work well, about all this stuff. But it remains a legit question. At least I think it remains a legit question, even though many people poo-poo it, of maybe we're a lot more productive than we think. We're just not measuring it well. Maybe our economic growth is a little more straightforward. Even that has some question marks. What do you, what about that idea? So I think if you want to make an argument, and I think you can make an argument that productivity growth is being mismeasured and it's several, let's say it's half a percentage point, several tenths of a point, it's been faster. I think, I think you can, you can make that case. Is it, is the mismeasurement so much that it's actually twice as fast as what we think it is? I don't think very many people are arguing that and nor am I caught up on the number. I'm caught up like, what is our potential? Even if you could come up with a new way of measuring it that said, oh, guess what? It's been faster all these years. Well, given what I just said, given, I think, better policy, it could have been faster still. I just, you know, there's no way with as bad a policy as we've had on taxes, on regulation, on federal investment on immigration, on trade, that we couldn't be in a better place than we are right now. So if, so I, I would not take any solace in those numbers. I think, that, I think we should try to get the best number we can. But the point remains that growth could have been faster no matter how we accurately or inaccurately measure it. And I just think there's like an acceptance. I remember, I remember back in the early 90s, the consensus was the U.S. economy had sort of hit its steady state. Growth was what it was. And how dare how dare presidential candidates talk about speeding growth up? And then we had a growth boom. Like 15 minutes later, we had a growth boom. I think, you know, maybe we're I, I hope we're at a similar point where people are saying growth is what it is. But I hope there's enough happening in technology, that we're going to do the right things to encourage technology, that we can have not just a sort of 90s growth boom, but something a lot longer and more sustained. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those things that are on the horizon that I, I know you're excited about, you know, by reading your your newsletter. Yeah. AI being one of them. I'll start with that. There's some others. You know, the, we've talked about AI in the podcast, but it was from a more ambivalent point of view. I think how I would describe your point of view is that you're worried it's going to be strangled by regulation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and if you just feel optimistic about it in general, you know, what you feel excited about. Well, I mean, I think the good news is that if it kills us all, we don't have to worry about Social Security and entitlement. So there's your <laughs> Screw <fix>. the debt. <laughs> so we can just spend, spend, spend because we're never going to reach the point. It's, you know, so one of the things I've complained about is sort of this pervasive half century real pessimism about technology. And if I ever thought that somehow is making too much of it, the fact that we've had what seems to be a pretty substantial breakthrough 
and creating a what they would call a general purpose technology that can be used across the economy. We got to enjoy that for about 10 minutes before the all the jobs are going to be taken away. And, and again, if they don't take all the jobs, they'll probably all kill us. I, the Listen, I think we should talk about AI safety, and I think we should talk about potentially what that means for workers. But to me, the the imbalance in the coverage between upsides and downsides, it's just so emblematic of the mistakes we've been making for decades. So it does not surprise me that a culture which has been sort of stewing in catastrophic thinking for all these years and a media which has now, again, firmly jumped on the this is all going to kill us and we need to talk a lot about it. And that I, I guess I'm surprised that not, not that only like 60 percent of people think the AI is going to kill us in the end. I, I'm surprised that may, maybe it's not higher. So that that bothers me. that bothers me. And then, you know, for a country that has learned nothing, nothing, we're sitting here, we were talking about climate change. And I've been again, I, I, I've been watching some very high profile TV series like Extrapolations and Apple TV Plus about climate change. And we're all worried very much. Well, you know, if, if we were getting 80 percent of our power from, you know, nuclear energy, maybe we wouldn't have a climate change problem. But we there was a this sort of overcorrection, I think, decades ago. But we've seemed to have learned nothing because now we're saying, I think, an overcorrection or overreaction to a technology that is not sentient, that cannot kill us all. And the threats at this point remain science fictional. And and already we're talking about pauses and nationalizing the technology. So yeah, that 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 concerns me and that that worries me. I, I will say, you know, it's not just the general populace and the media, right? It's also AI researchers and experts. Yes. And I think that's the thing that got me because I actually am I, I I have a job that has a lot of writing, right? You also write quite a bit. Um, we're supposed to be very exposed to AI. I really feel that the AI right now, there's no way you could do my job. It helps me right now. Like it's just a, it's sort of a useful tool. But there should be something to be said that the people that know, you know, the, the science and the tech behind this stuff are worried. I think the easy sort of center-right or libertarian responses, uh, like these guys, you know, you know, work at these companies and these CEOs, you know, they already have the technology. They're just trying to like pull up the ladder behind them. So now that we have the technology, we have the models We're we're going to let, let's let's have a lot of regulation. We have a lot of money. We can deal with the regulation. And that is a classic critique of calls for regulation that it helps the people who are already there. It helps, you know, big technology companies. And I'm not going to say that that is not playing a role, but 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 as I think about this issue, I kind of like, just like I'm setting that aside and thinking like, you know, people have real concerns. So I think absolutely, you know, this is an issue we should talk about that government should perhaps help research. I, I don't think it should be ignored, but I think to immediately jump to the idea that it's going to kill us, we should freeze it, we should nationalize it. I am worried again about the overreaction to to think about it and to research it and be aware of it, I think is one thing, you know, to, to make that leap. I think some people are making that leap. But I think, you know, listen, the. The original sort of early 70s environmental movement, one reason they didn't like nuclear power, not just because they're worried about an accident or they're worried about nuclear waste, but they were worried that. It would supply a lot more power and fuel a consumption of natural resources. And that's one reason why. They, so I, th then you have sort of what they would call the degrowth people who aren't going to like it because it looks like it might speed up economic growth. I, I hope it does. So I think there's a lot of reasons. So I, I, though to be clear, I do take the scientists very seriously and I'm not just going to hand wave away their concerns as a bunch of, you know, you know, you know, CYA, you know, cover their tuchus kinds of things. No, I, I'm not going to do that. You know, another, another, set of members of the Progress Network, Ted Norhouse and the Breakthrough Institute and Alex are sort of have been making this argument of nuclear power is probably the most the the simplest immediate fix to some of the carbon emissions energy problem, but of course is so embedded in a framework in both Japan and Europe and the United States of, you know, Chernobyl and Fukushima and Three Mile Island and the China syndrome and it's gonna kill us. 
Thank you for the China syndrome reference. Often gets left out. That's just when it's got that one in there. I, I do wonder about the the degrowth part, right? So here's another maybe devil's advocate question, which is the world's population is plateauing. The population of the developed world is shrinking and aging. Well, it'll age before it shrinks, but it'll plateau, it'll age, and then it'll shrink. And I don't know that any of us fully confronted the question of like, what do you do about growth when there are fewer people and they're consuming less, as in separate from whether or not degrowth is an ideology that you ought to buy into. Isn't there just a pragmatic legitimacy to think that endless growth in the face of a shrinking number of bodies is unrealistic and therefore trying to create policies that juice it are not the best use of our, our collective resources. Right. I think the all the impacts of a global population plateau and shrinkage and shrinkage in developing economies. And I just did a great conversation with one of our visiting scholars who thinks that the UN is, you know, overestimating population growth. So instead of peaking at the end of the century, it's actually going to peak in the 2060s. Never, never really get much beyond nine, nine billion. So I think we we don't. Initially, he had never seen the movie Children of Men, which which so I I recommended that he that he watch it. So I have to think, I think you have to look. What are the problems? We don't want economic growth just because it's statistics. What are the problems we want to solve? And growth will help us solve. I think. I I think problems such as there's still a lot of poor people in the world. I think we'd like to we we'd like those people to be better off, be healthier. I have more opportunity. I think that's a problem. I think we have lots of, you know, med medical issues. We'd like to solve. We'd like to solve those. We would like to make our society more resilient to all kinds of. We've heard this word about existential threats about from AI lately. What well, AI can actually help us deal with some existential threats. So I think are there problems that that being more having more technological progress would would solve. I think there are. Can you do that? in a world of shrinking population. I think that's more of a challenge to the extent that our brains matter and the more brains you can throw at a problem, the more likely you can solve that problem than a shrinking population, again, hurts that. But I think that's where AI comes in to help leverage AI to be a super research assistant you know, for our research community. So I think if you're worried about the shrinking population, if you're worried about, gee, with a shrinking population, we can't grow as fast, then I think you have to really be very, you know, enthusiastic about AI helping, as it always, as machines always have, help us do more with what we have. But doesn't things becoming ever cheaper equally solve the problem? I've, like, I've always posited this, and I feel like this is part of the problem of statistics and our frameworks, right? If something costs a dollar and you're only earning 70 cents and earning a dollar is a good thing because it gets you to buy whatever the thing that you need that costs a dollar. But if you're earning 70 cents and that thing suddenly costs 50 cents, it, you've done just as good a job of meeting the needs that you talk about, right? So people who can't access things they need because their income isn't sufficient, one way, in fact, the only way we've focused on altering that equation is more growth, more income, more productivity, more output. But you could also solve that issue by cheaper stuff, which would actually look really bad for GDP and growth, but it would still solve the essential but That would also come through innovation. To be able right. to create things more cheaply also comes through innovation. And then there are the needs we don't have. Then there are the things which we don't think of as needs or wants because they don't exist yet. Right? That's, that's our need. What we, what, we, what we view as, a, as what our basic needs are and what is a good life, that is not, that's not a static thing. You know, I, you know, what, what I thought was like the, what were my needs and wants, what I thought made for a, a interesting life were different. Are, are there things said that I couldn't imagine as a kid? And perhaps for my children, that will mean taking a vacation in orbit or taking a vacation on the moon or living to 120. And when you're a hundred, you feel like you're, you know, like I do right now. So we don't know what those, and that's, that's what we're doing. You know, we're, we're trying to solve problems and, and, and meet I guess meet needs we don't even know we want yet. And I think, again, that's right. I mean, I'm sort of not being flippant. I talk about a cooler, more interesting, more opportunity-filled world. I mean, I think that 
that is sort of the 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 never ending end game I'm looking at. It's funny because I feel like the I'm so used to thinking about that through a dystopian lens, right? Like when you think about like our basic human needs being met, where the popular culture usually goes is like everyone's basic human needs are met. Now everything is done through AI and you're only interacting with people through a like VR set. And so we're all, you know, in the corners of our room. Right. But I mean, can you flip that for me right now? Like, let's say we we meet all of our basic human needs. Poverty isn't a problem anymore. Health, let's say health is is pretty largely solved. I mean, what else could be out there? Is it, do you imagine these I, things? I think, I think another way of looking at that is what are going to replace the jobs that machines replace? I don't know. I mean, that, that, that is the weakness of my position in any kind of debate or argument. I can, I can think about how AI or humanoid robots can do some of the things or maybe a lot of things that we currently do. I think most of us could imagine that. I could, I, you know, I guess I could imagine how an AI can do a lot of my current job. I cannot imagine very easily, and maybe I'd be a really great investor if I could. I cannot imagine the new things that will be created, the new job, the new task, the new desires. I can't, I can't, it's very difficult. Again, I would be a fantastic growth stock investor if I, or a venture capitalist, if I could do that. But I can't. And that's why there's a lot of humility. Like my version of futurism is not, this is what's going to happen in 10 years, or here are my three scenarios. My version of futurism is creating a society that's kind of organically bottles up through our, all our decisions, create, give us the capability to create a sort of better future. I don't know exactly what that's going to look at. Maybe it'll look like, you know, maybe what we'll decide as a, as, as a planet, as a people, will look like a Corsican, a giant in Star Wars, a giant planet-sized city. Or maybe it'll look like you know, some of these solar punk images. We're all living kind of in tree houses and things, you know, but, you know, artificial trees. And there's, I, I, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I want people to have the ability and resources to create the kind of future they think they want to live in and their children want to live in. Again, I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. It's very easy to create the other thing, what you just mentioned, the dystopian yeah. version. Boy, that, that's just a lot of rubble and smoke and, you know, people being very sweaty, you know, and, <laughs> or zombies. That's, that's so easy. That'll be it. What will AI be able to do? AI will be very easily able to create dystopian films. Maybe it can help us create some utopian films as well. Hey, everybody, I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's the time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's funny, when you give like a dystopian view of the world, 
A, if you're the one giving it, just don't give a date, right? Like if you're going to do the Armageddon scenario. And B, no one holds you to that, right? No one holds you to the date. Like you're not beholden to prove, in, in our contemporary culture at least, to prove your worst case outcomes. But you are somehow on the hook for, for the proof that you just said it's hard to prove, right? You can't show what jobs are going to be created. You can't. But somehow that, that becomes a failing in the argument. Whereas if you just forecast the dominoes falling and gloom descending, it's at, somehow one is not held to quite the same standard of future evidence. Oh, well, I, 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 what is it, uh, the Wall Street saying, if you're a market forecaster, give a number and a date, but not both. You know, I, I think, and I, I, I can, I always forget who said this, that, you know, how is it that people think we have nothing but disaster ahead of us when we have nothing but progress behind us? We've had, we've had an amazing quarter millennium of progress, but yet, People think that, that, that they're living, always living in the end of days, that this is it. We can't keep doing it because it's unpredictable. It's, it's absolutely unpredictable. So what I want to do is give us the resources to not predict the future, but sort of invent the future that we want. Again, maybe, that's, maybe it's a what they call a cool shit futurism scenario where it is space elevators and it's a multi-planetary you know, civilization. That's very attractive. Maybe, maybe we'll decide something different, but we'll give us the capability to create what we find to be interesting and fulfilling. And hopefully along the way, it will mean that all the other billions of people on this planet who don't maybe think much about the future because, you know, it's, you know, their present isn't very good, that then they'll think about the future. I mean, we were talking about degrowth. How does that, you know, it's not just some crazy ideology because it seeps into all our conversations when you hear people say, we can't have all these poor people in the world live like we do now. I think that's a pretty good goal. I think that's an absolutely fantastic goal. What are we trying to achieve? That every person in the world uh, can live the way the average American or Swede or German lives today. That, yeah, I, I like that goal. Let's do that. Jim, I have a personal question for you, which is how did you get here? Meaning I feel like you probably didn't, you know, pop out of the womb or out of college with this vision of futurism that it really is fun. Like every time I read your Substack, like I, I, I feel like, like I had a good time, you know? Great. <laughs> it's true. It. Yeah. I mean, how, how, how did you get to where you are now with your thinking on this? Well, I, th I think the, you know, I think the easiest explanation that doesn't, you know, recount me talking about my love of of science fiction and growing up in, you know, growing up in a, a kind of a working class background where I, I did not think like, this is the best my life could be. And this is not like, you know, I would, I, I would love if, you know, I, you know, I, I could move up the ladder. So that was always in my thinking, but listen, I, I have a big family. I want my kids to live in a, in a world that is, you know, safer, more opportunity filled, that they can live the kind of dreams they want, that when they walk outside, it's not going to be 130 degrees in the middle of January. That's what I want for them. So a lot of it really comes and I started thinking a lot more about this as I had more kids. So, you know, what, what is the pro growth reason for having more kids? Well, it makes you think a lot about the future. And I, and I, and I have certainly, it has certainly made me think more about the future and what kind of world, uh, you know, I want for them. My, my, I'm, you know, my days aren't over yet, but that, 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 that's a big part of it. There's a sort of a trope out there of millennials and Gen X having a much grimmer view of the future, both planetarily and economically. I mean, if, you, if you're comfortable, do your kids, do your children, many of whom I think are grown, share that? And what's the debate like? <laughs> you know, what's, the, what's the dinner table debate when you're making that argument and they're saying, hey, man, they <laughs> I know they really love the idea of student loans being forgiven. That seems to be, as far as policy goes, they would love to live in a world where their student loans are forgiven. That 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 is one sort of future oriented thing we've talked about. I think they're I think they're generally pretty. I think they're I think they're generally pretty optimistic. Though again, I think the the last I think the last few years has made it harder, certainly, with a, a pandemic, which has disrupted their lives, disrupted their schooling. They look at the American political scene, and it seems absolutely insane and chaotic. And I keep telling them, like, it's kind of not normal. 
politics like this is not, you know, it, you know, it's it used to be like a lot more civilized. And so I think generally they're pretty optimistic. And whenever I hear the hint of like, you know, oh, you know, you know, the, you know, the earth is going to be turned to a cinder and all I go, I go, that is just absolutely not true. And you have every reason that you could, your life could be every bit as fulfilling as mine was and my parents and more fulfilling. There's no reason why that can't happen. You need to make good decisions. What, listen, one of my favorite, like sort of someone who's not known as a futurist is he's known as a nuclear war theorist was Herman Kahn, who was, they did a version of him in Dr. Strangelove, who's this kind of painted as this dark nuclear war theorist. But in the latter half of his career, he became kind of this techno capitalist futurist in the seventies. And when he was talking about his views, he eventually summed it up like, as long as we keep like advancing technically, and we just don't make a bunch of stupid decisions, we should be okay. So that's my bar. Let's keep advancing. Let's make sure the government does what it's supposed to do. Let's make sure our private sector is doing, you know, what it's supposed to do. And just let's not make any horrible decisions. And I think we'll be okay. How millennials and and Gen Z and younger view the U.S. political scene is a a very favorite topic of mine because I'm a, a millennial. My political consciousness sort of began around 9-11. I just feel like it's just been a shitstorm ever since. And so I feel like people my age and younger feel like there's no other way. Like, it's, this is just how politics is. And you had something in, in one of your newsletters about the United States 50 years from now. And I think a lot of people my age assume the United States is going to be worse 50 years from now. And you had something where you're like, the, you think the economy will be stronger. The U.S. will be more important in the world. The country will be more politically unified and the gap between the rich and the poor will shrink. And I was like, well, that's pretty much the opposite of, of you know, what we hear most of the time. You want to you want to back that up a little why you think that Sparknotes version? I think here's I, I think the pandemic actually helps my case. I hope it does. It's not entirely built on that, but it's partially built on the pandemic is that we, we saw what it was like to live in a world of shortages, right? Where you know, we had these supply, we have supply chain problems. So maybe we couldn't get things as easily in the past, or we just didn't have things we needed. We didn't have the masks we needed. We didn't have the ventilators, even though this was a problem that like there were a gazillion reports warning us of, we still weren't quite ready. So we saw a world where we didn't have what we needed. We saw a world where there were shortages and we, we saw a world where the economy was a, it was a degrowth economy. And then we saw the value the value of being one, a wealthy country and a country capable of coming up with solutions on the fly. We saw the value of technology. We saw the value of being able to come up with a vaccine based on a technology that was still fairly experimental. So I hope that one of the lessons we learned is that, that, and I don't know if you remember all the stories about America is a failed state. We're a failed state Mm -hmm. because we, well, the failed state was able to generate amazing vaccines. Now, getting people to take them maybe something else, but is able to come up with amazing vaccines very quickly. Why were we able to do that? Because we are a rich, technologically advanced country. That doing that, people working together, whether you had the government doing its part, you had entrepreneurs, the private sector doing its part, that could create that can create some amazing solutions. And that's why, you know, we didn't, that's why. The country didn't look like contagion, the movie Contagion, which we were all watching in 2020, where everything falls apart because we're able to solve problems. And that's how we move forward. We saw we work together. We solve one problem. We solve another problem. And then we get to a better world. Amen, brother. I'll take that as a as a final word word for this particular conversation. I think it's a good final word. I think that's true of most societies. One thing we've been trying to highlight in these conversations is that the United States has done uniquely well in dealing with collective problems, not nearly as well as we would like or our can in the future, which you've been highlighting. But we don't have a monopoly on that. You know, that other societies have similar desires, similar impetus. And look, one of the un- less heralded stories of the past 20 years has been the degree to which vast numbers of people around the world and what we used to call the developing world have begun to. I guess, own their own destiny. They've been able to own their own destiny and they've been able to create systems and societies that are 
just like everybody else, messily and stumblingly solving those issues, you know, producing better material conditions, better social cohesion, you name it. And that that's not a story that is somehow limited to Japan, the United States, and Western Europe. So great to talk to you. I hope we'll do it again. We do love the work. Again, Emma's pointed to your Substack, which everyone should read. And and you are a voice that we like listening to and have enjoyed listening to for the past bit of time. So thanks, Jim. Thank you both for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Clearly one of the difficulties and challenges of doing this podcast is the risk of an amen chorus, because we do tend to have people on who we like hearing. That hasn't been always true. I mean, I like hearing to people even I don't like hearing from, so it's not like I only want to listen to people who whose views inherently accord with my own. But, you know, Jim's one of these people who've really embodied this idea of let's look at what's working, let's look at how we can solve what isn't working, let's look at the ways in which we've done so in the past, let's have some degree of faith that we're going to be able to do it in the future. Yeah, and he really does this with a sort of, a, he hinted at this towards the end, like sci-fi inflected way that there's a lot of topics that I would consider dry that he writes about that I really meant what I said, like it's fun. And when you can get yourself on board with a mind that okay may may not have all the answers but just sees the future in a in a cool way in a more fun way he says it's a lot like like let's make the united states like a cooler more fun place to live it makes the whole thing more palatable and it's a nice palate cleanser actually we are an amen course maybe sometimes here on the podcast but we are very different from most of the voices out there so is that there is that Maybe we should create hats. I should have thought of this during during our discussion with Jim. We could do MACA hats instead of MAGA hats. Make America cool again. We could do the, like the Make America Cool Again. I think we'd get a whole sort of cross-cultural, bipartisan, just an idea. You know, I'm happy to report that our followers on Twitter come from both the hard left and the hard right. Jim himself writes in a, in a very nonpartisan way in terms of political parties. So I think we can do it. Maca. Maca, Maca, Maca. Maca, 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 <laughs> Maca. All right. From Maca to the news of the week, what do you got for us? All right. So I have a couple things that are very much so related to the conversation that we just had. One of them is how AI is helping us fight bacteria. Obviously, antibiotic resistance is a huge issue, one that most people know about, that we are just running out of things to kill bacteria. And it took AI an hour and a half to go through thousands of compounds to give to scientists that may help against a certain bacteria that it's a superbug. There's really no antibiotics right now that, that can kill it. And, you know, the scientists in collaboration with AI found nine potential new antibiotics and one in particular that works really well against this superbug, this very particular bacteria. So this new antibiotic is called Abacin. Not sure if I pronounced that right, but it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's super cool because like there's a lot of potential out there to find things that will kill bacteria. The problem is finding them and AI cuts that time down very much so. Yeah, you definitely can model out many, many, many more variables and scenarios and multivariate scenarios through AI than the human, well, certainly than humans can do in a lab or that any other computer program had been able to do prior. The, uh, the name of the bacteria is called Acinetobacter baumani. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's a really nasty infection and it is quite resistant to most antibiotics. It causes sometimes quite devastating lung infections and skin infections and new antibiotics to treat this are essential. And what the scientists did was they looked at the structure of this particular bacteria and they used AI to really help inform them of how best to attack this structure and how best to not just penetrate the structure, but look at the inner workings of it to develop an antibiotic that could, that could treat this really, really challenging infection. And they found a really good antibiotic to do this. And the interesting thing is the antibiotic is actually a narrow spectrum antibiotic. It doesn't, it doesn't appear that it will work on a lot of other bacteria, just this bacteria. You think, well, that's not a good idea, but the, it actually is a good idea because this way it's laser focused on this particular infection and you don't have 
the potential to develop antibiotic resistance, or I guess I should say less potential to develop antibiotic resistance to this particular antibiotic. So this is an incredible development. I think we'll see a lot more AI in the future to help with drug discovery. So moving on from saving us all from nasty bacteria and into the unheralded story that you mentioned at the end that a lot of countries and a lot of places are moving on up in the world, there is a big index, big data set called the Social Progress Index that tracks not GDP, but 52 other quality of life indicators. So everything from basic human needs to personal rights and freedoms to environmental quality, life longevity, basically like all the stuff other than economic growth that makes up having a good life. And they do these scores every year. But until now, we didn't have the ability to compare countries over time. So what they did is like, made a huge data set that tracks every country. It's 170 countries, covers 99.9% of the world's population, tracks the progress between 1990 and 2020. And we've made incredible progress. Basically, every country improved between 1990 and 2020. Only Venezuela's overall score declined. Tajikistan had the same score between 1990 and 2020. And then there were a few countries that made very little progress, like North Korea, Zimbabwe. But overall, almost every country showed progress. Some showed massive progress and the score, like the world score as a whole improved. So like there is actually real data that shows that the world is improving. I think this is one of these things, again, that we struggle with constantly of, and I, I, the, the social progress people who've been at this for a while struggle with, there is this like, don't let the facts get in the way with a good, of, of a bad story. So, of course, the Social Progress Index does solve some of the problems of some of the happiness indexes, the UN Human Development Index, which all of which attempted to broaden the dashboard, right? It's not just about economic growth. It's not just about a- output. We talked about that with Jim just now, but there are definitely other metrics that all of us understand are essential components of living a good life or living in a stable society. And the deficiencies of GDP have been known for decades. Robert Kennedy's famous speech before he got assassinated in 1968 about how GDP essentially measures everything except that which is worth measuring in life, you know, time spent with, a, with family, enjoying a summer's day. And actually, some of these other indexes, the social progress one, does talk about things like leisure time and space. I mean, all these things that, we, that you kind of need as part of the warp and woof of, of a good life and a good society. So even on those, when we broaden out the data, like not just output per person or longevity or infant mortality or child maternal mortality, even when you move beyond that to things that are harder to quantify, but you know you can't quantify free time, disposable income, things like that. Even then, everything has been improving markedly. And even then, things have a long ways to improve. And even then, everything we just said for a huge portion of people in our contemporary world is like crickets, or it's like wah, 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 wah. Like, it just doesn't, doesn't compute. Yeah. And I, I should say quickly, too, that we didn't improve in all of the indicators. There are 52 of them. But if you are interested in looking at the data, you can just Google social progress index and the data is all there for you. And I should say, too, that lest you think the progress stopped in 2021 or 2022, it did not. The only reason why it's not included in the backtracking to 1990s because they expanded the index even more to include more indicators. There are seem to be some clouds on the horizon for 2023. They're kind of expecting a little bit of rocky times, but I think that's the aftershocks of the pandemic. So we will wait and see. So yeah, people should definitely check out the Social Progress Initiative, socialprogress.org. And you can look at countries comparatively. You can also look at where countries are doing better or not. And they're just part of a whole phalanx of other organizations, which we are trying to highlight at the Progress Network. You can go to the website. We have related organizations that are doing like-minded work to try to create this network of networks, which is equally important to the people who are involved and which Emma is totally essential in creating. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you all for listening. We will be with you next week and wrapping up this particular season a few weeks after that. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Plug Glomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, the Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.